the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Proudly supported by Disney Plus. Full of stories and love for all. For me, coming from that community, knowing about the cultural nuances and cultural uh, how-to, I guess, of my background, I wasn't entirely surprised. Like, I do know that there are progressive corners in in our communities around the world, and I feel like I'm, I'm part of that cosmopolitan progressive privileged side of it and I, and I do see that and I wanted people to know that you know we do have different ways of living our lives and we're not just you know we don't need to be rescued all the time we don't need to be pitied or saying oh what's it like being gay and Arab it's, we don't need to go through that you know we don't need to show everybody the trauma that we went through to satisfy readers hello I'm Matt Kane and welcome to Matt Kane meets on Virgin Radio Pride that was Elias Jarshan, editor of the brand new anthology This Arab is Queer, the first collection of LGBTQ plus Arab writing. Elias is a Palestinian, Lebanese and Australian journalist and writer. He's the former editor of Star Observer, Australia's longest running LGBTQ plus media outlet and a former board member of the Arab Council Australia. He was born and raised in Sydney and now lives in London, where he's the social media editor for The New Arab, an English language news website covering stories from the Middle East, North Africa and beyond. I'll be speaking to Elias right after this. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. This is Virgin Radio Pride. I am Matt Kane, and today I am thrilled to be chatting to Elias Jarshan. Elias, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Matt. <laughs> and congratulations on the publication of your book, This Arab is Queer. Yep, yep, it's been amazing. It's been really exciting. Well, let's start by talking about the book. So, it's a collection of, am I right in thinking, personal stories from 18 Arab writers. That's correct, yep. And are they, are they, do, they identify, do they identify across the full LGBTQ plus spectrum? Yes, absolutely. They, some are gay, some are lesbians, some are identified as queer, some are non-binary, some are trans, some are bisexual as well. So definitely across the whole spectrum, I thought that was really important to have that representation. What kind of countries are they from? Uh, they all come from 11 different Arabic-speaking countries or represent uh, 11 different Arabic-speaking countries. So um, some of them are still in the home homelands itself but some of them uh, like myself are in the diaspora so in terms of the 11 countries you've got writers from Lebanon, Egypt, Palestine, Jordan, Syria, Iraq, the United Arab Emirates, Sudan. You're um, counting on your fingers. Yeah I know. You've got to number eight. Kind of, there's so many there's, there are 22 there are at least 22 official c- countries that countries that have Arabic as their official language so would, would have loved to have got one from every country but um, that is probably for another book for another in the future <laughs> yeah, save, um, save the rest for the sequel that's not bad going for book one yeah yeah I mean but I, I mean, if there is a sequel I would it would be great if someone else is the editor I would love to be involved but I think it's important to have someone else as the editor to offer a different perspective different lens different um, uh, connections in the, with the community than I do um, because yeah it's just it's, this is something that's for the community it's about the community rather than about me itself well and it's interesting often in the west we are guilty of talking about the arab world in inverted commas as if everybody behaves in a uniform way within that world but presumably if you've got 11 different writers from different not just different countries but as you say some in the homeland some from the diaspora there must be a real variety 
of experiences explored. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the well, one of the main goals of this book, uh, to show that the different uh, variety of, of lived experiences and to sort of highlight the nuances of what it's like to be Arab and queer, regardless of where we live. No matter where we are, we're still queer. No matter where we are, we're still Arab. The environments we live in don't really change that, but it does affect the dynamics we have with who, who we are, where we live. Um, but yeah, and I, it's, I think it's really important because the inverted commas our world it's, I, I find I try to avoid using as much as I can because it is far, is quite reductive um, because the Arab world is incredibly diverse we're not a homogenous group we're not a monolith there's so many people from different cultures we've all got different skin tones we've all got different religious beliefs we've all, some of us have different languages as well so that, what what do you have in because I was going to say what do you have in common then is it just the language but you've just said there's different languages um, I mean no, well, when I say different languages I mean because there are although Arabic is the most common language spoken in the Arab world and that is something that unites us all and there are cultural similarities as well in the same sense that there's cultural similarities between the UK and the US but you know part of the West and stuff but in, there are different languages that there, there, there are Kurdish people there are Turkish people there are Iranians there are Assyrians there are also the Amazigh the, the, the indigenous population of North Africa so um and yeah, and even some people who speak Arabic might not, not might not necessarily identify as Arab, and that that comes into play with um, some people who from Sudan, for example, even other Afro Arabs as well. So um, it's a very very complex identity, and I think it's more of a linguistical thing. But um, yeah, I think someone who's who's a professor in uh, what's that word? Someone who studies people social who, anthropology. That's the word. <laughs> I haven't had enough coffee today. <laughs> I've um, had too much. Yeah, they probably be able to define that a bit more eloquently than I can. But yeah, we. We are we're, we're diverse, so we can't can't lump us all into one sort of group of people, you know. And how about the styles of writing that you've got in the book? Is it? I mean, how diverse are they? Is it a mix of fiction and non-fiction, or is it? Yes, it's all. They're all non-fiction. So they've got essays, short memoirs, and other forms of uh, creative non-fiction, such as vignettes or um, autofiction. Um, but it's all short chapters. Well, they're not that short, but they're all chapters. They're all cha- it's a chapter book essentially. Every story is different and unique. And are there any that, I mean, um, you've got a lot of experience of Arab culture reporting on it. Are there any that surprised you or revealed aspects of growing up queer in Arab cultures that um, you hadn't thought about? Um, not me personally, no. Um, uh, I do know some of the, some, a lot of the stories in there might surprise a lot of readers, and I think that is important. But for me, coming from that community, knowing about the cultural nuances and the cultural uh, how-to, I guess, of my background, I wasn't entirely surprised. Like, I do know that there are progressive corners in, in our communities around the world, and I feel like I'm, I'm part of that cosmopolitan progressive privileged side of it and I, and I do see that and I wanted people to know that you know we do have different ways of living our lives and we're not just you know we don't need to be rescued all the time we don't need to be pitied or saying oh what's it like being gay in Arab it's, we don't need to go through that you know we don't need to show everybody the trauma that we went through to satisfy readers and stuff so um yeah we just I guess for me, it wasn't too surprising, but if, if it surprises readers who don't identify as Arab or even uh, some, some Arabs themselves who are conservative, then sure, I mean, I, then I, I guess that's my job done. It does feel like, just to hear you talk about it, it does feel like this has never been done before. I wonder, when you were putting it together, were you aware that you were breaking new ground and that there was a responsibility that goes along with this? 
yeah, it did cross my mind, but I tried not to dwell on that too much <laughs> um, because I'm, I'm a chronic overthinker and I knew if I dwelled on that a bit too much, I probably would not have gone ahead with it. Um, yeah, I, it did cross my mind and I did as much research as I could to make sure that nothing had ever been done before because that was sort of like the hook of my pitch to the publishers. And I do know there have been journals out there and uh, there have been magazines published and online magazines about uh, the Arab queer experience, but nothing in a book format from a publisher, at least in the English language. I'm not sure, I can't speak for anything published in French because there's a big Arab diaspora in France and the French-speaking world. Um, and I th- yeah, obviously I can't speak for much of what's happening in Arabic because yeah, there's the there's censorship and stuff that you've got to deal with there. And speaking about, you know, knowing that you were breaking new ground and you felt a responsibility, because there's so much negativity in the media about Arab queer experiences, did you feel that you wanted to put out a more positive representation or did you just want to be true, whether that involved positivity or negativity? Um, yeah, look... When I approached all the writers to contribute to the book, I made it clear to them that the microphone was entirely theirs. I did not want them to think about the audience. I did not want them to think about pandering to particular narratives that they think their readers would expect. I wanted them to tell their stories their way without having to think about the readers and just do it. Imagine, like, you know, they're telling their story to themselves in in some way. Um, So some of the stories there are quite heavy, but some of them, I would say most of them, come away with a sense of hope. Whether... I did not tell readers that uh, my whole aim was to turn stereotypes on the on the head. I did not say I wanted to put positive representation because that will be will be in denial. There are negative aspects of the Arab culture that we do need to talk about. We do need to shine a light on. That doesn't make us any less proud of who we are, but we just have to talk about it because. You know, we can't be in denial of these things. No, it's interesting. I remember years ago when I first started to do queer journalism, feeling that there was so much negative so many negative ideas about us out there already i wanted to put positive ideas and representations out there and i suppose if you think about queer arab culture and experiences it's still a kind of revelation for some people who've never experienced any in the media so it is a shame that if what they get is negative but did you have that as a principal goal that you wanted to be authentic um maybe subconsciously because like you i come from uh queer media as well and that was my goal when i was working at star observer like i realized when i walked into that office at star observer that i was the first editor coming from a non-english speaking background in star observer's 40 plus year history so i felt that responsibility weighing on me that i had to represent the multicultural side of australia's queer community in some way because we were underrepresented and to add that on top i'm also deaf so i had to sort of represent the the disabled community in some way because, you know, there's a lot of stigma around disabled queer people. So I think having had practice in sort of trying to shine a light into these underrepresented corners of our community and the queer community in Australia, coming into this almost felt like it was the next logical step just to focus more on the Arab community, but in a global context. So I really wanted to sort of, yeah, absolutely shine a light on this underrepresented part of the Arab world, but also the whole aim was to sort of show the world that we have our own agency. We can tell our own stories on our own terms. We don't need to be writing for mainstream outlets whenever there's a need to write because there's a headline we have to respond to. We just wanted to write something without that sense of urgency to respond to anything. And we wanted to sort of show that we can speak for ourselves without anyone having to speak over us or speak for us. Just to sort of celebrate the agency that we have and celebrate the diversity of our community. 
Okay, Elias, you've already hinted at about five or six things I want to pick up on in your life story. I'm going to try and do it without falling into stereotypes and cliches, but please do tell me if I stray into them. Okay. But first, we're just going to have a quick music break. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. This is Virgin Radio Pride and you are listening to Matt Kane Meets with me, Matt Kane. And today I am delighted to be talking to Elias Jarshan. Elias, so we've talked about your book that you've edited, This Arab is Queer. Now let's talk about you and your life. <laughs> um, our listeners will obviously have picked up on your accent. You were born and brought up in Sydney, Australia. Yep, yeah, that's right. My mother is Lebanese and my father father is Palestinian. They met in Australia in the late 60s. And then, um, yeah, I was an actor in the family. I was born 12 years after my the next sibling in my, the other sibling in my family. Um, my mum will always say I was a nice surprise. That's her nice way of saying I was an actor. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I've never ever felt like I was different to the family because I was that age different. I've always been very, very lucky to have the support and love of my family and stuff. And how about feeling different to everybody else? I mean, I don't know how big an Arab population there is in Australia, but could you talk to us about that and how... Arab you felt, how Australian you felt, how different you felt? I could talk for ages about that. Um, There is is quite a large Arab community in Australia, especially in Sydney. And the Arab community in Australia, from my experience, I would say the vast majority of them are Lebanese. It's not like in North America where it's it's quite a mix, or even in the UK or Europe with quite a mix of Arabs. In Australia, it's still predominantly very much Lebanese. Um, And in Sydney itself, I sometimes joke uh, to some... um, especially to other Arabs, but I don't know. I, I sometimes joke that Sydney is the Dearborn of the Southern Hemisphere. And I don't know if you're aware, but Dearborn is like a city that shares the border with Detroit in um, in America. Oh. And um, it's, it's regarded as the Arab-American capital of North America, America. There's a huge population of Arabs there. And and I think one of the, Rashida Tlaib, the, the Democrat uh, representative in Congress, she, she represents that ah. area. Um, anyway, so I sometimes joke that Sydney is the dearborn of the Southern Hemisphere, if you take out Latin America, because there's 12 million Lebanese in Brazil, but that's just another story <laughs> for another time. Um, but, uh, I didn't know that, actually. Yeah, I'm learning huge, things already. Yeah, the biggest diaspora of Lebanese is in Brazil. There's more Lebanese in Brazil than Lebanon itself. Um, but that's another story for another time. But, um, but yeah, so growing up, like there were times when I felt more Australian than I did Lebanese and there were times I guess for a long time I sort of struggled because I was actively trying to separate and compartmentalise these identities rather than let them enjoy each other like embrace them all together in their chaotic mess Um, Well presumably the it was difficult to do that. I mean presumably you were keeping them separate because that's how you were led to behave presumably the life you had they were separate well yeah i mean it wasn't no fault for my family like my family never really told me i had to keep it separate ever it was more because i grew up in a time like around 9 11 i was in high school when that happened so the racism that came out of that kind of affected my growing up and how how i viewed myself as an arab and i sort of strove to be the model migrant um just to do it just do good in school, represent the community, be a good role model for the community and stuff. Does being a model migrant also involve, in the minds of some people, assimilation and integration? More integration in my sense. I didn't really try to assimilate myself at all. I think assimilation implies that I'm giving up my cultural identity and just whitewashing myself, basically. I did, I was, I'd never really whitewashed myself. Uh, but I think some people would class a model migrant as somebody who does whitewash their culture. 
Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I've sort of veered away from the mentality of model migrant now, especially now that I'm an immigrant in the UK now. Um, just I've, I sort of really understand what my... not. I, I would never understand what my parents went through when they moved to Australia in the 60s, because in the 60s and 70s in Australia were more racist than what it is today. Um, so I'll never understand what they went through. But me coming to London uh, six years ago, just sort of... And I would always get you know, sort of all the struggles that I went through in the first nine, six, nine months and stuff. Like I just had to remind myself how trivial they were compared to what my parents probably went through. Um, and how, and we, you know, we mentioned integration. How attached were your parents to their home cultures? And did they take you to visit their home countries? Uh, they were very, very uh, attached. Like my mum would always talk about Lebanon, always talk about her growing up. And my dad would always talk about Palestine and Jordan, where he grew up before he came to Australia. They would always speak Arabic to me. And I, and, um, I spoke a, a, the best Arabic I could back to them. It turned out more like Arab English. Um, yeah, so it, they were definitely very, very attached to it. Like, you know, not just in the food, but also in how the family dynamics we have were, were always... There's a level of intrusion in our private life that's just probably very hard for some people who would not understand. Um, uh, so yeah, and if you just go into like cultural events or family events, such as weddings or Christ- and Christmases, or um, just seeing other people for just it's just very hard to describe. It just it's such an embedded part of who we are, um, and our culture and the way we interact with other people. So yeah, they never ever sort of shied away from embracing that at home it was more when I was away from my parents that I felt sometimes embarrassed to have to explain to people why I was the way they are and, I was, and for I think for a while I just didn't want to have to the reason why I compartmentalized is because I just was exhausted with having to explain myself all the time and to justify my humanity to every person I met and I just should not have to do that because just because they're reading negative headlines in the news it's their problem they're jumping to conclusions not mine all we're talking about at the moment is Australian and Arab you've already mentioned that you're deaf and we've not even got on to discovering that you're queer yeah <laughs> I know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the fact that I was um, coming to terms with my Arab identity for a long time pushed my coming out journey back into the, the back of my mind because I was dealing with all this racism, dealing with all this, you know, who am I trying to discover myself in this hyphenated identity of Arab Australian, you know, just trying to see where I stand and where I fit. So when you say it pushed to the back of your mind, do you mean that you actively suppressed it because you didn't want to deal with it? I was just in denial for so long. I was in denial. All of my high school years, I was in denial. Like, I knew I was gay. I just didn't want to... I just didn't acknowledge it. Um, I didn't want to acknowledge it or confront it. It wasn't until I was in my third year of university that I sort of came out to myself and I felt a sudden massive weight off my shoulder. Why do you think that you did suppress it for so long? Was it um, expecting... Um, negative reactions. From- yeah, yeah. It, one of the downsides of the come, growing up in our culture is the is the entrenched patriarchy that affects every facet of our lives. And one prime example of that is how the family and the point the importance of family is drummed into our psyche from a very young age. It's just meant to get married, have kids, pass on the family name. It's, it's very much you know, male driven as well. It's also when it comes to um, when it comes to family gossip or people talking about other families or the children of other families, my name would not be mentioned. There's a, it's the way the way they use the phrase is saying the son of Fadis Jashan rather than my name, Ilyas Jashan. So it's, it's Ibn Fadis or um, it's, 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 the, it's a different, yeah, it's always, it's hard to explain without using my hands, I guess. Um, <laughs> um, and just to so, say to our yeah. listeners, he is using his hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just can't, can't help it. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's just that and there's, 
is the whole sense of you know family reputation and and wanting to live up to your family's expectations especially with my parents coming to australia and how much they sacrificed and the idea of me coming out gay to them will be like you know well we sacrificed so much for you now you're gonna you know, now you're not gonna have kids you're not gonna get married it took ages for me to unlearn that and to realize that i can still be who i am well also in those days you couldn't get married and have kids as a gay man could well, you yeah, so yeah. um whereas now um, I know that attitudes, people don't always understand that from particular cultures, but um, now you can do all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. In Australia, yes, but um, in our world, you still can't. <laughs> um, and I think also what affected the cultural stigma, the stigma in my family is that the the countries my parents left in the 60s is different to how the countries have developed now. So you go to Lebanon now, there's a very visible queer community there. You go to Jordan, there's a queer community there. You go to Egypt, there is a queer community there despite the crackdown that the regime is doing. There's a queer community everywhere regardless. And Beirut is often touted as, you know, the queer capital of the Arab world. And it is in some way, but it's more than just Beirut. And uh, and I think I think it took a while for my mum to understand that, you know, her, the world has changed from what it was in the 60s, so... So what happened when you did come out to your parents? How did they respond? Um, it was an accident when I came out to my mum, actually. I, just, I was dating my ex-boyfriend at the time and we had a very big night on the Sunday night of all nights um, at one of these parties in Sydney. And I stayed over my ex's house that night and I took a sticky off work on Monday, but I was just so hungover. So I came and my <laughs> mum... all been there. Yeah, and I, I just hadn't... I just hadn't... My mum hadn't heard from me. She thought I was gone missing or something. I came home that, that morning. She was like, where were you and whatever. And I think it all just came out there because up until then, I was giving her a lot of white lies. I'm staying at friends' houses for the weekend, doing this for the weekend, going away for the weekend. was really I was staying at my ex's house for that weekend in Sydney, not going anywhere. Um... And that's so, not good for the soul, lying. No, all the no, time, the, is the it? lying got to me. And I think, um, and my mum was thought I was taking drugs. And I was like, no, I'm not taking drugs, mum, you know. So, um, yeah, I did come out to her. And she, she was, it took her a while to come to terms with it. Um, it was, a, it was basically um, a white elephant in the room for a long time. Um, one of the contributors in the book, Anbar Astalam, she talked about the concept of unheld conversations. And that spoke to my experience in some way. Um, so it's just, yeah, it took a while and I, and I couldn't really push it. There were small wins here and there. So, for example, the the day I got offered the job at Star Observer, like my mum was, it had been about maybe two years since I had told my mum. I came home that day and I said to my mum, look, I've got, got this job offer an editor of the national um, magazine called Star Observer. She's like, oh, okay, cool. And I said, it's the gay and lesbian publication, mum. And then she just went silent. And then she said under her breath, you know, Mabruk, which is the Arabic word for congratulations. So, and I know it wasn't probably the most the over-the-top congratulations ever, but the fact that she said that one word just meant so much to me that she was like, she was not stopping me from going for it. She sort of did one small step forward. I just took it as a win. There were other things as well, like um, there, she was watching on Arabic satellite TV, of all things, this interview with, um, I don't know if you've heard of uh, this Egyptian Hollywood icon named Omar Sharif. Oh, yeah. uh, he was in uh, Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zavago. Um, his grandson, Omar Sharif Jr., is openly gay, and he went on I've Arabic... I've met him. Hmm? I've met him. He's oh, okay. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he went on uh, Arabic um, satellite TV to speak about his coming out experience and stuff. And my mum watched it on her own accord, I didn't tell her to watch it. I didn't even know it was on TV to begin with. And I just came home from work one day and, she, and we're just having dinner. All of a sudden, she started talking about it. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, what is what's my mum doing? And I was like really excited. But I just kept it to myself. I didn't want to ruin it. So that was one small win, um, big win, actually. Yeah, and there were other stuff. Like, 
we didn't really talk about it much again. Then when I moved to London, I met my husband and about three or four months into the relationship, my mum was coming for a visit and I had already met my husband's family by that point. We were we're moving very fast and then my mum was coming to visit and my husband was like uh do you want me to meet your mum i'm like yeah i definitely want you to meet my mum and he was very he knew about the dynamics i had with my mum and he was like offered to spend a week without seeing him. i'm like no 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 no. we've got to normalize it in, from, in front of my mum whether she likes it or not so yeah it's not and 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 it went turned out so much better than i expected um they they got to know each other quite well and i'm like okay then maybe it's all in my head maybe my mum has moved on and accepted it yeah and then it wasn't until like you know maybe Christmas 2019 that I felt like okay I think definitely my mum definitely come full circle is when I went back to Sydney with my husband for Christmas in Australia and there was just one day where like, my mum was constantly feeding my husband all the time like she just wouldn't stop but um, but there was one time where like we, we, went, we went to the beach on New Year's Day because it was summer we went to the beach on New Year's Day with the whole extended family was there and I was like my husband was a bit overwhelmed thinking, I didn't know you had this many relatives I'm like well this is only a fraction of it actually um, <laughs> and then that that night we came back home and then I uh, was lying on the couch just like you know trying to cool off because it was so humid and then my husband just turned to me and just mouthed it to me not even a, not even no voice came out of his mouth at all he just mouthed to me he's like I'm a bit hungry and he, he was looking at me my mum didn't even see his face and I'm like, oh, okay. And then my mum just jumped up the couch, opened the fridge. What would you like? Or oh, get some snacks out? <laughs> and she just laid out the whole table. And my husband was like, this is not and a snack. And that's when you knew like, she was on board. Yeah, I'm like, snack does not exist in my mum's lexicon. <laughs> okay, right. I love that story. There's lots more I want to hear, but we're going to have to take a quick break. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. This is Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Matt Kane, and today I am thrilled to be chatting to Elias Jarsham. Elias, we've been talking about your story, how you came out to your mum in stages. Obviously, I'm getting the impression she was a key member of your family in terms of coming out. What about others? Um, yeah, I, I came out to my siblings first and they were there, well, I came out to them when I was 21. So it's been well, like a good 16 years or so since I've come out to them. They were really supportive, my sisters especially. My brother took a while to come to terms, but um, he came around eventually, like my mum, full circle. We had a bit of a cry and a hug and, which, and, a, and a nightclub of all places, both drunk, but it was very, very emotional and I'll never forget that. And my brother's become one of my biggest supporters now. He's always telling all of his friends that I published a book and stuff. He, I would never have imagined my brother doing that to all of his mates. Mind you, my brother's a redhead. He loves his cars, loves working in the garage. He's a he's complete opposite to me. So he's telling all of his mates, his all blokey, blokey mates, oh yeah, my brother published a book about gay Arabs it just blows my mind he's like to really just become this unofficial ambassador of breaking down the patriarchy and how, how about can I ask about your dad yeah um, my father unfortunately passed away when I had just finished uni so I was about 23 um, I never had a chance to come out to him because I just wasn't ready at the time um, do you wish you had been ready or do you think it wouldn't have ended well uh, I really don't know. I mean, I can sort of dwell on that question of what if, what if, what would have happened, but I really don't know how it would have turned out. Um, I just know at that time, at that moment, I had only come out to my siblings and some cousins. Not even all of my friends knew. I was. I hadn't even started working full time. I just finished uni. I was still in that phase of trying to find myself as an as a you know an adult. So, and I, I get. I guess a part of me wanted to tell my dad, but you know. He, I, when he was on, when he was in, in hospital and stuff, and he had a few just a mere weeks left to live, I didn't want that yeah. to become about me. I just wanted to make sure that we both left on good terms. My father and I were close. Like a lot of my personality, a lot of my politics, is because of him. Um, you know, he was 
he was very much a, a left-wing progressive person. He probably wouldn't have wouldn't have the language for that, but he was definitely a supporter of the Labour Party in Australia. Um, but in the, in the 1970s, when um, Labour Party came into power, we had Gough Whitlam, and he was really progressive. He enacted all these progressive laws, abolished the white Australia policy, did some great stuff with the Indigenous community, and really made the immigrant community more feel like they were part of Australia for the first time. Um, and I think my dad got swept up in that. And I think because of his progressive policies, I know that if I were to have told him, it may have taken him a while to come around to it. Because I, but because my dad was progressive to begin with, he, he, would, always, have he would have come around. Yeah, yeah. And how about when you started to, ex- outside the family, when you started to explore your identity as a gay man? I mean, you've already talked about having this ex-partner around the time. So um, what was it like when you, having had to suppress your sexuality for so long when you started to express it? How did you do it and how did it feel? Um, it's, it's, it's a bit hard to define. I feel like, I mean, we all know in the, in the gay community or the queer community that, that that whole idea of how we live our lives in our 20s is sometimes compensating for what we didn't have the chance to go through in our teenage years. Totally. And I felt like that was that similar experience to me like because I came out in my early 20s. For the first few years, I was so awkward. I was like, I'm socially awkward to begin with. But I was much more socially awkward back then. And I was trying to discover myself. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm gay. And now what? I didn't really think through about the next steps. And then, um, and yeah, then I dated someone. And it was a good relationship at the time, but it just didn't work out for various reasons. And then, uh, and then it wasn't until around the time I came out to my mum and also my aunt, my dad's sister, who I'm actually quite close to as well, until I did those two big coming out things. It was like the last big coming out. I guess chapters in my life that um, I felt like a massive weight off my shoulder. I'm like, okay, now I can sort of go out and not have to feel like I've got to constantly look over my shoulder all the time. Was that f- just fear of your secret getting back to your family when you say yeah, looking- yeah, yeah? I, th- I felt like it was important that the people who who I was closest to in my family they heard it from me first yes. before they heard it from gossip. Um, it was important for me to control the narrative, and after that, I was just like you know, just wanted to. I just suddenly felt like I had the freedom to sort of go to all these parties and stuff and. Yeah, the the late twenties, early thirties of my life were some of the best I ever had because I was single. I was, let's put it that way. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so was it all? Um, so often, I know a lot of gay men who've suppressed their sexuality for so long that when they start to express it. Um, it can be a bit overwhelming, although it is positive. It can be almost overwhelmingly positive. Was it all positive for you, or did you also encounter? Was it, was there any? negativity towards you as a an Arab? You know, you're saying after 9-11, did you encounter any prejudice from within your new queer community? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, for me, it was very, very much positive, but I didn't find it overwhelming because I took it step by step. I didn't really, I didn't let it overwhelm me. I sort of took it gradually. And um, and I was learning a lot. And I'm, I'm a sponge. Like, I just, I like learning new things. And I've, I found the more I spent time in the community, the more I learned about the history of the community, the more I appreciated being part of it. So there was that. But by all means, there was definitely some uh, prejudice I experienced and some racism I experienced towards me. And you, whether it was when I, used, when I used to be on the gay dating app, that I, tell it, I had to put... Middle Eastern, or got those, the fetishes, the fetishized messages come through, or the racist messages come through. It's always some one of the two, and sometimes it was hard finding the ones in the middle who were normal, I guess. Or, or even me going to like a party and stuff. Like I'm, I'm quite white passing, so no one would know, wouldn't really 
bat an eye. Um, so do then, people sometimes express prejudice to you thinking you were white? Once they hear my name, they hear my name is Elias or Elias or whatever, and they, and they ask that question, where are you from? It's just that simple question just always did my head in. It's like, what do you expect me to say? I was born in Sydney. And you know, where are you really from? I'm like, oh, from this, I named the specific hospital I was born at. And then it's just what like... What do they want you to say when they're asking that? It's quite a loaded question, isn't it? It's extremely loaded, yeah. It just makes me feel otherwise. It makes me feel like they're trying to prove to themselves that I am not like them. And um, and I'm like, mate, I love Kylie Minogue. I love Tim Tams. How much more Australian do you want me to get, you know? <laughs> and I'm from Western Sydney. I can put on my Bogan accent if you want, you know? <laughs> and how about... So, um, obviously, this is a very positive experience for you. I don't want to dwell on negatives. But did you encounter any prejudice towards your deafness when you were... Um, getting into your new community and exploring your sexuality? Um, quite possibly. Um, I, it's very hard for me to pinpoint several experiences, but at the same time, my deafness means that I miss out on things without realising I'm missing out on things. So whether people were talking about me when I walk in a room, I would have no clue if that were the case because I just wouldn't know. If they, I wouldn't. I can't really compare to what it's like living as a normal hearing person to someone who's deaf because I've never... Yeah, I don't know. So I'm sure I had I had some um, prejudice. And, and I had, had some experiences where people withdraw when they see the hearing aid in my ear and they don't know that, oh, I don't know how to deal with this um, or stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, I have, but it's just the prejudice I felt was more towards my um, my cultural background, um, my Arab identity more so than my deafness. So. And you've mentioned your struggle earlier in life to reconcile the different parts of you, the Arab identity, the Australian nationality and your sexuality. So I'd love to know when you first started to do that, when what the breakthrough was. Yeah, um, I had, I think... The first time I really felt like I could be all three at once and love being all three at once is when I went to this party in Sydney called Club Arat. And it's basically a queer Arabic music party. The founders, and they're still organising it today, are two Lebanese Australian women, queer Lebanese Australian women. They, st- they founded this party to bring the local queer Arab community together with, for us to dance and have fun at a party and stuff without the, I guess, the judgement of our family looking on and to be able to embrace our culture and live our culture without the shame and stigma that we experience in our families. And it wasn't until I went to one of those parties for the first time that I was just so overjoyed and so in love with being Arab and gay at the same time and in a safe space in Australia that I was like, I'm so lucky to have this space here. Um, and yeah, and that's when I went, I met one of my best friends through Club Arak and I met some other friends through Club Arak and ever since moving to London, I found a similar community and there's a, there's a similar party in London called Pride of Arabia and it's the same sort of concept, it's having a safe space for us to sort of be ourselves with. But it's interesting, isn't it? I asked what the breakthrough was and it sounds like, from what you're saying, your breakthrough was quite simply seeing it, seeing other people like you. I mean, it's that basic, isn't it? You need to not be the only one. Yeah, absolutely. And it did, it, it, just seeing other people like us doesn't necessarily mean we have to see other people like us in the media. It just means just seeing other people in the community like that party. They, a lot of these parties, a lot of the people who attend these parties, they're not out to their families. They're not public about it at all. We're not allowed to take photos or anything because for that reason protect everyone's safety but just being in that space and just seeing that visibility in the community and seeing everyone embracing their Arab and queer identities together and having everyone just having a good time in this safe space just made me it was so empowering and um I really appreciate that and I remember I'm really glad I saw that just before I started working at Star Observer because that kind of helped with who I am 
Fantastic. I love that positive note. On that, we're going to take a quick break. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. You're listening to Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Matt Kane, and today I am chatting to Elias Jarshan. So, Elias, we've talked about the book, we've talked about your upbringing as a gay Arab Australian and how you reconcile these different parts of your identity. I would love to talk now about the situation of queer people in the Arab world in general because it's one of your specialist subjects and it's one of the subjects about which there's the most misunderstanding in our community. So first of all, let's deal with discrimination in these countries because I know a lot of Arab countries do criminalise homosexuality, although they vary in the level of enforcement. To what extent do these restrictions stem from European colonial laws that were inherited and to what extent do the patriarchal norms embedded in Arab culture that you've already mentioned, to what extent do they influence the discrimination, would you say? I would say it's a bit of both. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge the Western intervention, Western influence in these laws, but at the same time, we can't not take responsibility for the entrenched patriarchy, the entrenched uh, stigma that's in the, in the culture at the same time. So... Um, yeah, I think it's a matter of looking at these two things in a nuanced manner and just um, looking at the ways of just decolonizing our minds, I guess, and just looking at, okay, these laws exist because of the European, but uh, it's, yeah, I feel like I'm just getting off track here, but I, I, it's a very hard question to answer because me coming from a place of privilege living in the West and having the the security and safety of growing up in a place where I don't have to worry about these laws and stuff, trying to wrap my head around living in a place where it is, criminalised, it's something I can't exactly fathom, but I do know that even though these laws exist, there's still a community there, they're still finding ways to thrive and, stri- and strive. So, Are you glad that you grew up in the West, or is that too simplistic? Would it, And would you feel disloyal saying that? Um, I didn't have a choice. Um, I was born in Sydney. It's not like I had a choice to be born there. I, had, I just had the luck of the draw to be born in a place that gave me a really privileged passport. Um, and it's not something I take for granted, by all means. It's something I, I, I do appreciate and the fact that it's open borders for me. But at the same time, it just, it's just I have to reconcile that privilege with the, with the fact that there's so many people in the Arab world itself who don't have that privilege. They can't just easily up and go into another country that's safe because of all the borders and visa restrictions and stuff. So I don't know if I'm glad, but I, I, do, I don't take that for granted because of the luck of the draw. So, um, and yeah. how do you, I mean, you've worked for years in reporting Arab news. How do you feel, let's get the bad stuff out of the way without dwelling on it. How do you feel when you have to report on homophobic attacks in the Arab world? That must be difficult for you personally. Yeah, because, like, I don't like platforming homophobes or transphobes. I don't think anyone wants to platform these homophobes or transphobes at all. We've seen the repercussions of it in the UK with the turf scandals, I guess. Um, So that's no different with uh, stuff coming out of the Arab world as well. But the thing is, like, we do have to report on them regardless. It's it's not the it's not the fact that we shouldn't report them. We have to report them. It's just, it's more about how we report them. And that was one of the reasons why I put this book together because I felt like not much attention was given to the very lived experiences of queer Arabs around the world. It's not much was we weren't given much of a platform to sort of tell our stories our own way. It was more about you know always people speaking over us or for us or people just only wanted to talk to us for a particular response or 
to, 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 to put our trauma porn out there for the world to see. So I, I guess I wanted to challenge that. And as a gay, queer Arab with a public platform, do you feel it's your responsibility to push for equal rights and greater acceptance? Do you feel that activism is something that you have to do or you're obligated to do because we're not all built to be activists are we but there's not many queer arrows with a public platform or access to media outlets yeah i mean i'm very apprehensive to about the word activism because i don't feel like i've done the hard yards or i don't think i don't feel like i've earned the stripe to be called an activist i'm not an organizer i'm an advocate yes it's just living openly as a queer arab not a form of activism in itself I guess so. I didn't think of it that way. <laughs> um, I was—I would have thought more just me being myself and not lying about myself and just being open and honest with people. Because I do—I do think personally visibility is important, but it doesn't work for everyone. So um, the whole being visible. But, but people say we need more visible people in the in the media in the community, and that is true. But it might but it probably works in a Western context, but it doesn't necessarily work in an Arab context. So, has, have, it, has it not worked for you in, in an Arab context? Have you had it, any challenges being it, openly gay? It only worked for me because I grew up in the West. If I grew up in the Middle East, I don't know how. I can't really explain. What about when you go to the Middle East now as an openly gay journalist and um, writer? I'm sure there are. Um, how how many of them are out of the closet? Is, uh, is, is, but what about you when you go to these countries? Um, I haven't been in a while, <laughs> and uh, I can't really I, I can't really speak on that. But uh, I do know that you know I've, I had been out to some gay bars in Beirut, and I just feel like. It's, it doesn't feel any different to going to a gay bar in London or in Sydney. Have you experienced any backlash from other gay Arabs who live quieter lives, who maybe don't want the visibility or attention? Um, not yet. But I'm very, very aware and conscious of the fact that, that just because I'm visible and out there, I don't expect other people to do the same. I'm strong in belief that people's personal safety is of utmost importance. And I do acknowledge the fact that you know coming out it doesn't work for everyone and coming out in some ways is arguably a western concept it doesn't necessarily work in the in our world because it, it implies the one size fits all approach but if someone is living a quiet life if someone is in the closet or how, wherever they are in their journey they should still believe that they are celebrating love for who they are the queer person so that, that doesn't make them any less queer or any less arrow for wherever they are in their journey and if there if there is backlash i mean if people do disagree with that i'll be open to engaging and discussing with that this is not i don't believe in it being a one-way street it's definitely a two-way street and what about i mean you've mentioned personal safety what are the greatest misunderstandings from the west about in inverted commas the arab world um, the fact that we're all conservative and religious when that's not necessarily the case. There, we've got all varying re levels of how religious we are or lack thereof. Um, and, you know, not every Arab is Muslim. Uh, and just because you're Muslim doesn't mean you're Arab. Um, there's that. and there's, there's, I mean, I'm, I'm getting a bit reductive here, but it's just like... A f but I think also when it comes to the queer Arab community, I feel like there's a misunderstanding in the sense that the West always views us as needing to be rescued all the time and as needing to be, we need to have someone to come in and help us out when that's, some of us don't need that. We don't need, uh, you know, the West or any white saviors to come in to sort of hijack the discourse around our lived experiences. We can speak for ourselves. Sure, by all means, there are definitely people who, who need the state to, who need to be taken out of the country for whatever reason. Um, but that's, an, that's a case-by-case case thing. You can't really speak for all experiences at once. So, it's, yeah, I feel like that, there's definitely a lot of misconceptions. 
and in the first few chapters of the book, there's a lot of sex, I guess. And I really wanted, I really wanted people to know that you know, just because we're in a conservative part doesn't mean we don't have sex. Being queer, that almost means we've got more chances of being sex positive compared to anyone else. And I wanted people to realise that, you know. But can I just confess to a misconception? I was going to say to you, what advice would you give to any young gay queer Arabs who are considering struggling whether to come, struggling with the idea of coming out? Actually, you've already said coming out isn't necessarily the right course of action for people in... Yeah, it depends on the individual. It depends on who who, who I'm speaking to. So if someone wants to come out, um, that's their choice and their choice only. If they don't want to come out, they don't have to come out. I don't, no one should ever feel obliged to come out in order to feel like their, their, their queer identity is validated. They can still be in the closet and still, be valid, still feel valid and validated for who they are. So, um, but I still strongly believe that personal safety, personal security trumps everything. Whether they're in the Arab world or in the diaspora, it doesn't matter where we are. Like, many of us are scared about how our families would react. And it's very easy for people from non-Arab culture to say, well, if they don't like you, you can just walk away from them. But for me, the, one of the reasons why I struggled, I could not divorce myself from the idea of completely abandoning my family. Because like I said, family dynamic is so strong in Arab culture that unlearning from that and removing yourself out of that is extremely difficult. For any of those queer Arabs in challenging situations that you have talked about, looking to the future, do you feel confident the situation will improve? Is there hope? Absolutely. We have to have hope in the future. We have to have hope that things will improve. It might not seem like that now, but we just have to have hope that there are more people will be more comfortable to be who they are. We are already seeing more and more allies in the Arab world come forward to speak in support of us. So, yes, there's definitely hope and there's definitely um, a movement of queer activism in the Arab world that we don't necessarily hear about, but they're doing the hard yards on the ground and we have to sort of engage with them we have to give them the platform when needed so yes there's definitely hope and i think it's really important to hold on to that elias thank you very much thank you so much for having me matt kane meets virgin radio pride right that's about it for this week thank you very much to my guest elias jarshan drop me a line on social media if you've enjoyed the show or you have something you want to say we are on at virgin radio uk and i'm on at matt came writer and please while you're at it do use the hashtag virgin radio pride matt came meets will be back next week the Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney Plus, celebrating every color of the rainbow.